0: Our Lord Jesus, we, we do thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the one who embraces the weak, the, the one who loves sinners, who ate with them, who was who compassionate, full of compassion, full of grace and truth. And your, your character was so attractive and so uh, delightful. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us this morning to know a bit more about who you are and how we might be like you. Please, Lord, as we've just prayed in that song, we want to be like you. So please speak to us by, by your spirit this morning. Amen. So we're continuing our series on leadership, as Joe said earlier, uh, this morning looking at servant-hearted leaders. But, um, before we think about servant-hearted leaders... Uh, I didn't know him, so he may have been, I don't know, but I guess not. This is a guy called uh, General George Patton, who was uh, a USA Army General during World War II. And he said this quote on leadership, or so the internet tells me anyway, I've no idea. And he said, lead me, follow me, or get out of my way. Lead me, follow me, or get out of my way. There's a nice, soft, um, servant-hearted statement there, isn't there? Or... uh, Sticking with the United States, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, 26th president, uh, he said the best executive is the one who has sense enough to pick good men to do what he wants done and self-restraint enough to keep from meddling with them while they do it. So here we go again, this idea, get someone else to do it. I want this to be done. I'm a leader, so I'm just going to get someone to do something. That's, that's what leadership is about. Or uh, just to go British for a second, Tony Blair, you probably, don't, you probably know who he is, but he used to be Prime Minister here. The art of leadership is saying no, not yes. It's very easy to say yes. Again, this kind of getting other people to do stuff. If I'm saying no, that means someone else has to do something. Is the essence of leadership just being able to delegate and prioritize? Is leadership primarily about vision and strategy? Our communication skills and, and an ability to inspire people, the chief qualities of leaders. Or, uh, as one, uh, lots of people talk about these days, is emotional intelligence the must-have, the one thing you've got to have to be a leader? Or maybe all of that's a bit too soft. Perhaps Lord Sugar has it right by ruling by intimidation and instilling fear and bullying, as some has described his, his leadership style. What's your boss's leadership style if you're in the workplace? Or how would your team describe your leadership? Or who leads the groups at your school or college? Who are the cool ones, the tough ones, the braggers? Are they the ones who lead the groups? Well, what kind of leadership does Jesus honor among his followers? What kind of leaders does he want to lead his church? And we might apply these principles to our leadership in other spheres of life, be that in the boardroom or in the club committee. And the answer is not too hard to find. What kind of leadership does Jesus himself model? And as we observe the way Jesus led and taught about leading, we notice what's important to him. And it might not be what we expect. The book of the Bible that we're reading from most this morning was written by a guy called John, who was one of Jesus' earliest and closest followers. He writes an eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're joining the story at chapter 13 of John's Gospel, which is on page number 1081, if you're using one of the church Bibles. And John begins this section of his book with a time reference, letting us know when these events happened, which, as we'll see, was a significant and important detail. It was just before the Passover festival. The Passover festival was well known among John's readers as as well known as Christmas would be today. In fact, probably better known as most people today don't quite get what Christmas is actually about. But the Passover, every Jewish person knew the story of the Passover, when God famously and miraculously rescued his people from slavery in ancient Egypt. Every year, Jewish people would remember and celebrate this rescuing act of God by having a special meal together, and in fact, a few days of feasting, the Passover party. And this is the setting for the verses we're about to read. Jesus was with his close followers in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, about to share the Passover meal together in remembrance and celebration of the God who rescues his people. And we're going to begin by just reading verses 1 to 3, where John highlights a few things that Jesus knew. So firstly, let's see what Jesus knew, verses 1 to 3. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Pausing there, let's just note what Jesus knew. Jesus knew, verse 1, that the hour had come for him to leave this world and return to his father and jesus knew verse 3 that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from god and was returning to god the hour is an important theme in john's book you can trace it right through as the story builds essentially it's referring to the time when jesus will be crucified when he'll be lifted up to die on a roman cross and this hour had come. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew this meal would be the last meal he would share with his disciples before his death. Jesus knew that later this very evening he'd be betrayed by one who was close to him. He knew that later this very night he'd be handed over to the authorities, arrested and taken away from the garden just outside the city. Jesus knew That the next morning he'd be examined in a corrupt trial. He knew that even though he was innocent, he would be condemned as guilty. He knew that the next morning he'd be led out to be crucified on the cross. He knew that by this time tomorrow, his body would be buried in a tomb. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Jesus also knew, verse 3, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus wasn't some unsuspecting ordinary human who who God sneaked into by stealth. Jesus wasn't surprised every time he performed a miracle. How did that happen? Jesus wasn't surprised every time he guessed right what people were thinking. As John made clear earlier in his book, Jesus was God, the eternal son of the eternal father in human flesh. And so Jesus, the eternal son of God, knew that his eternal father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that all authority in heaven and on earth was his. And Jesus knew that he'd been sent by his father And was about to return to his father. Jesus knew all of these things. Well what would we expect him to do then? If you were in Jesus' sandals. What would you do? You knew you were about to be betrayed and crucified. You know you have power over everything. And you know that you're God the son. About to return to God the father. What do you do? Smash the devil? Silence Judas? Stop it all from happening? Call down angel armies? Wipe out the authorities? What would you do? You might have noticed that verse 3 finishes midway through a sentence, and there's a a little word at the beginning of verse 4. Let's see what Jesus did, verses 4 to 8. Reading from verse 1 again. and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So, so, knowing this, knowing the things Jesus knew, so he did that. What did Jesus do? Well, it's kind of summarized in a sentence which seems a little unclear at first sight. In verse 1, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. A more literal translation is, he loved them to the end. as the the new NIV and the ESV translate it. This could mean that having loved his own all along, he now showed them the full extent of his love, as the old uh, NIV translation paraphrased it. That is, to the end could be taken to mean utterly. He showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them utterly his love. But the end could be linked to time. It could mean that Jesus loved them to the very end of his life, which, considering the context might be a bit better. But either way, Jesus demonstrates his love for his followers in what he did next. The supreme demonstration of his love for them will come hours later when he lays down his life for them. For now, though, Jesus demonstrates his love for his disciples in verses 4 to 11. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so Jesus adopted the dress of a, of a menial slave, dress that was looked down on, both in Jewish and non-Jewish circles. But his dress wasn't the most shocking thing. What was shocking, what was completely undignified, was how Jesus took the role of the bottom of the pile servant. Washing feet was a scummy job. Just try and imagine the heat, the dust, and the grit from the Middle East climate. Forget tarmac roads or paved footpaths. Remember, there's no such thing as a, a clean, comfortable car or bus to travel in. Didn't even have Segway scooters. You know, you had to walk. And you're not walking with walking boots. But with sandals, your feet are swollen, hot, dirty, stinky. And I'll stop there in case you're already retching. I know some people hate feet. You get the point. People's feet needed washing. It was a common necessity and a a fairly common thing to be done. But the job was reserved for the bottom of the pile servant, the slave, the lowest of the low. Perhaps... It's a bit like if you get a job in a restaurant whilst at college. Do you do the most glamorous roles or do you get to do the jobs no one else wants to do, like Mr Muscle? Uh, Do you get to do the washing up, all that kind of exciting stuff? The jobs all the more senior staff leave for you to do. Or maybe it's a bit like a graduate who gets a job for a large company on on a graduate placement scheme and finds himself mostly photocopying and entering data. Except washing up and photocopying are much more to be preferred than washing hot, stinky, dirty, smelly feet, sweaty feet. What Jesus did was completely unexpected. And what Jesus did appeared to be completely inconsistent with what he knew. Remember what he knew? What he did wasn't consistent with that. It wasn't right. And Simon Peter realised that. The others probably realized it too, but they were too embarrassed to say anything. They were just, this is awkward, uh, went along and let him wash their feet. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Peter knew that Jesus was the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. How on earth could Peter allow his dirty, stinky feet to be washed by the Christ? This really is in a different category to anything we might compare it with. But let's just imagine for a moment, uh, The Apprentice 2015 appears on our screens later this month, which I believe it will. Also, so the internet says, I'm relying on the internet today. And the first episode shows Lord Sugar welcoming the new bunch of candidates into the boardroom. Lord Sugar knows he's the boss. He knows that his empire is big. He knows he has the business clout. He knows he has a load of dosh. So when the candidates arrive, he cleans and polishes their shoes for them. And hand washes their socks and massages their feet because they ache because their heads are so big. Imagine that. Can you imagine Lord Sugar performing this act of care for his candidates? No, he can't wait to get firing. Alan Sugar and Jesus are very different people. The comparison is hugely inadequate. I'm glad you agree. The shock of what Jesus did would have far exceeded, exceeded any shock we might have if lord sugar did something like i just described would your boss offer to hand wash your car and all your colleagues cars or would your head teacher offer to clean and service your bike for you and everyone else's or iron your shirts how much more wrong is that the christ is a suggestion that the christ of god should wash his followers feet Jesus answered Peter as he began to explain what he was teaching through this act. So continuing from verse 18. So we've seen what Jesus knew, what Jesus did, and now what Jesus taught. And firstly, Jesus taught that you need to be washed, verses 8 to 11. In verses 8 to 11, Jesus talks about washing his disciples and making them clean. There are hints that this act of foot washing in in some way, in some way, pictures what he would do the next day on the cross. One of the ways the Bible talks about the crucifixion of of Jesus is that by his death, he washes us clean from our sin. We need to be purified, cleansed from our rebellion against God, our rejection of him. And God wants to do this. God wants to help us. We've sung in that song of him embracing us. God wants to help us he has made a way to make us clean, to make us holy, to make us acceptable. Not just acceptable, but children of his delight. God wants to help us. And the foot washing was a, was a shocking thing to Jesus' followers. But not half as shocking, as someone has said, as the notion of a crucified Messiah the next day. Dying a hideous and shameful death on the cross. But his foot washing points to his death on the cross. The exalted Messiah assumes the role of despised servant to cleanse others. Someone has said, that's not my my words. The exalted Messiah assumes the role of a despised servant to cleanse others. And just as Peter needed to be washed spiritually by Jesus, so do I and so do you. Otherwise we have no part with him. If Jesus doesn't wash us from our sin, then we have no hope, no eternal inheritance. Jesus taught that we needed to be washed. After he'd finished, though, Jesus taught further, as we read in verses 12 to 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher So, here then is this second message that Jesus would have us learn from this shocking and undignified act. His followers call him teacher, rabbi, and lord. That is, they respect and revere him. They look up to him. They submit to his authority. They obey him. He's the boss. Jesus affirms this it is right. He is their teacher. And their Lord, they presumably followed what he was saying fine up until this point, but in verse fourteen gets a bit uncomfortable now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another 's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you, well, what did Jesus mean was Jesus Uh, simply teaching his followers that they must continue this custom of foot-washing as a ritual in the church uh, throughout the ages forevermore. Uh, In which case, if he was teaching that, we ought to be practicing it here still at Portswood. Or was Jesus actually teaching a bigger principle, using the foot-washing to make a point? It it does seem unlikely that Jesus intended to initiate a lasting ritual where his followers must literally wash each other's feet. I don't think that interpretation is clear from this passage, and it's certainly, not, it's certainly absent from the rest of the New Testament part of the Bible. That said, some Christian communities have interpreted it that way. But rather, the heart of Jesus' command, what's really at the heart of all this, is humility and helpfulness towards brothers and sisters in Christ that we need to humble ourselves and serve. Perhaps it's helpful to remember the context of this. In verse 1, do you remember the context of Jesus loving his disciples? And also note verse 34 to 35. This is kind of sandwiched between these things. Jesus loving his disciples. And verses 34 to 35, A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. And so as Jesus has loved us, we are to love one another. As Jesus assumed the position of the humble servant to serve us, we are to assume that position and serve each other as an act of our love for each other. I think that's what uh, is at the heart of what Jesus is commanding here. Luke's account of of this same evening uh, records the following later on after the meal. This is in Luke 22, if you want to follow. Luke 22, verses 24 to 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them, that's the disciples, was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Again, Jesus sets the example. He's the master. As he, the master, is among his followers as one who serves. Matthew and Mark record an earlier occasion Uh, where Jesus had already taught a really similar lesson. It appears the disciples struggled to get this. Maybe we struggle with it too. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, Jesus said. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, is referring to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's in Mark 10 and Matthew 20. You see, Jesus couldn't have been clearer. If we follow the Son who came to serve, if we follow the Son who came to give his life as a ransom, then we too must serve. Well, how could the application of this principle work out in my life? This really needs to come from our hearts, so probably be best for each of us to think of our own examples of what a servant heart would look like in our own lives. How can I serve my colleagues at work? How can I serve the members of the ministry team that I lead or serve on? How can I serve my family or the people who I live with? And if we cultivate servant hearts like our Lord, then it will express itself naturally in a variety of ways. Some more obvious, some more subtle and often in secret. I'm really reluctant to suggest examples, but if you're unsure uh, what you could do, how about starting with some really small steps? Can you offer to make drinks for everyone, even though you're equally busy, if not busier? Can you wash the cups up in the office kitchen, even if you didn't use them and no one sees you do it? Can you help someone on your course with their study, even if you're finding, struggling to find time to do all of your own work. Another application from today is in the area of our overall church leadership. As John mentioned last week, we're about to begin a process of looking for a new elder or two. And maybe you've noticed evidence of a servant heart in someone else. And you'll be able to bring that to our attention when the time comes to ask for, for nominations of elders. Uh, you'll be able to say, well, I've really noticed this servant heart in so-and-so. But it's not just here, but elsewhere in the Bible, God has made it very clear that elders are not to lord it over the church, but rather to serve the church as shepherds watching over and caring for a flock. But actually this applies beyond eldership. This is a model of leadership for all of us to follow, whatever leadership position we might find ourselves in. In fact, there's a sense in which this applies to everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, leader or not? You see, there's no such thing as servant Christians and uh, consumer Christians. Jesus, the Lord, doesn't recognize these categories. For him, it's simple. If he, the Master, serves, then all who claim to be his followers must likewise be servers. And maybe he's challenging some of us today to service. Will we accept that challenge and serve like our Lord? How can we say that the servant's son is our Lord if we dismiss his call to serve? Those who refuse to serve presume themselves to be greater than Jesus who served. Therefore, if they think themselves greater, he can't be their Lord. And I realise some of us have more severe limitations than others. Clearly someone who's paralysed and completely dependent on others to help is less able than someone in a full physical health. This isn't intended to make us feel guilty for not serving in ways that we can't serve. You know your limitations. Jesus knows your limitations. The question about, is about where our heart is. And Jesus knows the answer to that one too. It's what Jesus knew, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. That we need to be washed and that we need to humble ourselves. And serve. I want to finish by uh, looking at um, a real kind of example of this from a different angle. In a kind of very popular passage later in the New Testament in a letter called Philippians. And uh, chapter 2 of Philippians. If you want to uh, find that with me, uh, you can do. I'll just tell you the page number. Um, but uh, this, is a, this is a kind of a passage written about Jesus. And it's on page uh, 1179. 1,179. And I'm going to read from chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. And this is, again, taking this application. Look at Jesus. Look at who he was, who he knew he was. Look at what he did and see how that means, what that means for us as those who claim to be his followers. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Lord Jesus, if we've seen this, we're stunned at your humility. We're stunned that you, the eternal Son of God, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, the one who's for all eternity been in that closest relationship with your Father, the one who's equal with God, who is God, That you should humble yourself to come and become a human, let alone take the form of a servant, a bottom of the pile slave, and let alone lay down your life, taking our place, bearing the punishment and the shame that we deserve. Lord, if we've seen this, we're stunned your humility. Forgive us for when we are just so full of ourselves. Forgive us for our pride, for our arrogance, for our slowness to be like you. And Lord, please help us seeing your humility. Please help us to do the same. For our brothers and sisters. Help us to be characterized by that same humility. That lowers ourselves. That gives ourselves. That loves. Please teach us Lord. As we reflect on how to put this into practice. In our different lives. In different places. Please show us what it means to be your followers. In this area. And we praise you. That you did this for us, to rescue us, to wash us, to make us clean, to make us children who you delight in.